You guessed it. It's another episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm Rob Walling, and this week I'm talking with Saul Orwell about growing his website, examine.com, to millions of views per month. He's 10 years into it. We talk about why he built it, talk about changing revenue models and how today it's a subscription business. So while it's not software as a service per se, it is information as a service. And he's built up one of the most reputable nutrition information websites on the web. That's examine.com. I also ask him why when you Google who is the most attractive man in Toronto, his webpage ranks first for that. He does some fun uh, SEO stunts like that. And so I just find Saul super interesting. I came across him because Sherry and he met at an event and then since then, you know, obviously me being in the B2B SaaS world and Saul being in the online marketing slash nutrition information world, he and I would not normally, let's say, cross paths, but it does come down to digital entrepreneurship, right? It's about being an online entrepreneur. And when I look at his path, working with domains and and becoming a essentially a digital nomad and then a self-made digital entrepreneur, there are more commonalities between what he and I do than than not. So obviously this episode is is a little different in that it's not straight SaaS, but we also touch on, you know, his subscription numbers, how he reduced churn and some other things like that that I actually find pretty fascinating. Before we dive into our conversation, there are just a couple more weeks left to get MicroConf local and MicroConf Europe growth tickets. We're hosting our locals in Portland, Oregon, Boston, Massachusetts, and Austin, Texas here in September, just a few weeks out. And then obviously in Croatia for MicroConf Growth Europe. Tickets are going quickly, and I believe we're going to sell out at least a couple of those events here in the next week or two. So microconf.com, look for in-person events if you're interested in hanging out. I'll be at all four of these events, and I'd love to see you there. And with that, let's dive into my conversation with Saul Orwell. Pleasure to have you on. I mean, we were talking offline a bit. You are the co-founder of examine.com, which first of all is a kick-ass domain name, um, but examine, your H1 is nutrition information you can trust. We have no conflicts of interest. Our team is composed of scientists. All we do all day, every day is analyze studies on nutrition and supplementation to answer your questions. And someone listening to this show, you know, it's a lot of SaaS founders, software folks might be thinking, well, you know, how is this relevant? How is someone who built a, a you know, a supplement, well, not a supplement, but a health information site useful to, to SaaS founders? And we're going to get into all that because you've done a huge, a huge amount of stuff. But I am really curious about Examine. It's a huge site with a lot of reach. Can you give us an idea of how large it is, maybe daily visits or monthly or, you know, whatever you, you share publicly? Yeah, so the content itself is, I think, collectively now on the website, we have like eight or nine million words that we've written. Um, so we've been around for 10 and a half years. So obviously, we've had a lot of time. Um, I think our research team, which is just basically everyone who actually does the research, analyzes the research and writes about it, um, in itself is up to 14 people. And I think we have like four or five copy editors and a bunch of reviewers and whatnot. Collectively, I think we're at like two and a half, three million visitors a month. I, I got to be honest, I don't look at it too much, especially with like the kerfuffles we've had with Google and whatnot. But one of the relevant things I think um, that is relevant to the SaaS founders is we have roughly 10,000 paying subscribers for content. So even though we, we don't offer a product or a solution, we actually have a lot of health professionals that rely on us for analysis. So there's a lot of, I think, analogous situations of like, you know, decreasing churn, onboarding, all that kind of stuff that we've learned that would be also 
relevant to other people in the SaaS industry. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I did. I was going to ask you more about your revenue model. I had clicked around the site. I'm not super familiar with it. I just haven't been a user of it. But I was clicking around, seeing you have a $29 a month plan. You can prepay annually for $17 a month, and then there's you know lifetime access for $800. So that is very similar in cost to you know to lower end SaaS or, or you know how a lot of WordPress plugins do that. So you're 10 and a half years into building this. I do want to talk about subscriptions and pricing and stuff, but I first want to hear like what was the impetus for you starting this? And did you and your co-founder start it at the same time or did he join you later? So yeah, the impetus was actually, I used to be very overweight, like, a, you know, gordito, that kind of stuff. And as I lost weight, you know, when you're starting to lose weight, you, we all, we can't help it. We're humans, right? We always look for the shortcut. So I think I literally bought 35 different supplements. There's a picture of it where it's just every single one imaginable. And eventually, you know, when you start actually getting into it, you realize the supplements don't really do much. Now, there are certain targeted specific situations, right? A lot of us are deficient in vitamin D or zinc or magnesium, that kind of stuff. And at this point in time, finally, you know, as, as I started losing weight and figuring it out, I realized that a lot of supplement companies are ripping us off and doing what most anyone else would do. I started complaining about it. So, um, I mean, I was in a different position. I had already, you know, I'd started online in 1999. So I've been building websites. Like I remember uh, learning Perl and PHP 3 way back in the day, right? So I've been around for a while, but I was in Colombia with two of my friends who were both postdocs, like she's Colombian. I mean, I was complaining about this because they're scientists and, and they just they just got fed up with me. You, you know, when you just so, keep hearing someone complain about something, like just go do something about it. So that's what they said to me. I mean, so that's what I did, right? I emailed um, someone I'd known for Reddit. Uh, I've been on Reddit now for 15 years, way too long. And so I emailed someone there and that's kind of how we got started. Um, and eventually, you know, it was, uh, it's always been bootstrapped. I've never taken any external funding, but it was just meant to be something small. You know, we'll bring in some people, we'll answer some questions, we'll talk about a little bit of supplement, stuff like that. But eventually we realized, you know, there's a real demand for information you can trust. You know, especially with, you can look at it, you know, social media, the algorithms are kind of always trend towards extremism. And so having someone that's like, hey, it's not as simple as zero or one. It's like, there's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of context. We eventually realized there was a huge opportunity there for us. So that's eventually, you know, when my proper, like we properly incorporated, co-founder fully came on board, built out the team. So that's kind of where we started. It was just a lark. But as you know, you, you're here from a lot of entrepreneurs that are like this, right? They just did something for themselves. They realized there was an opportunity. They ran with it. And that was kind of the same for us. Now, obviously our, our vision has expanded, right? Originally it was just fitness, bodybuilding supplements, actually what it was like creatine, that kind of stuff. I mean, now we're more in the nutrition space, but I think that's just part of smart evolution of any of any company, right? Figure out what people want and kind of go from there. So so that was our, our original random start. Yeah, because it's, it's so interesting because when I first visited examine.com, and I don't remember when this was, but someone mentioned it to me and I came to it and I thought, oh, this is nutrition, health information. There are a bazillion sites, you know, in my uneducated mind, right? I'm not super into health or nutrition. I eat well, but I don't, you know, do, do a lot of the stuff. But, and I was thinking, this is just like all the others, like that's what it felt like. And so I can imagine you getting started thinking you want to be different. I guess it's just a much less biased and a more scientific approach. Is that the idea? Yeah. So originally the idea, well, so, okay. The, the baseline was always that anything we will state will be based on research. So if you ever really gone to the gym or if you know anyone who has, there's that bro science phrase, which is just dudes will spout off, usually dudes will spout off like things that make no sense, but that's what's just, you know, it's like the gospel that's been passed on like the 10 commandments for the last God knows how long. So the original idea was like, Hey, you know, we're just going to analyze the research and we're going to put it together. Cause part of what happens is, you know, you might see a headline, like this supplement does this for weight loss. Right. 
but it turns out that it's in you know overweight uh, women who are suffering from menopause. And I don't think you or I are suffering from it. I don't use the correct word suffering, but you know we're not uh, experiencing experiencing menopause. So that stuff doesn't really apply to us, right? So that was the original genesis of like, hey, let's make something that's research based, and that has been a huge challenge for us and a lot of other health sites. And we might get into it, the entire why and why update that Google did a few years ago is unless you are well, well established, I'm not like billion dollar companies like Healthline, WebMD, Everyday Health, it's been a bit of a slog, right? How do we differentiate ourselves? So a lot of the energy that we spent originally was on building up social trust, right? Was building relationships one-on-one, showing them that we're very, very serious about what we do. Because that's what happened a lot uh, happens a lot with nutrition online, right? There's always a dogma. And, and, and it's not even just nutrition. It's now pretty much everything online, right? There's always, I've got this view and everything I see will either agree with me or there's some shoddy, you know, they're going to pick up the smallest nitpick details out. So we've always tried to also take a very Switzerland approach. And to me, that's a very long-term thing, right? We've never made it about personality. It's been like, this is what the research says, like it or not, we don't really care, honestly, you can go away. It makes no difference to us. So it's been of a slog, but I think eventually people recognize, I, I want us to use the word excellence here, but they also recognize context and nuance, which unfortunately is becoming a little bit more rare and rarer these days. And to build something like that, because you're talking about trust and trust is heavily related to brand, right? It's like your brand makes people trust or not trust you. And in this case, I can't imagine you had a tremendous amount of trust the first day you launched or the first month you launched, but you're two years in, five years in, 10 years in. Now it's like a staple to have 10, you said 10,000 people, including like health professionals are subscribed. Yeah, so the primary health professionals that are subscribed, but trust is interesting, right? So when I started, uh, when we started off, we kind of spawned off Reddit. So what really happened was we were very active in Reddit fitness, which back in the day had like 5,000 people. I think it's now at 5 million. So it's grown just a little bit. And so we were well known, we were known commodities too, but part of what happened was newbies would come and that included me originally how I ran across Reddit fitness. And they'd ask the same questions again, right? Is creatine okay? Should I take vitamin D? And eventually you just get tired. So really it was kind of a, Hey, we're so, and this is before Reddit introduced like uh, wikis and FAQ functionality. So we just got so frustrated. We're like, hey, we're just going to build this website that answers these questions. So we had a bit of a leg up that on Reddit, at least, or at least in our little, you know, subreddit, we were known commodities. We were known as being like, we were obviously irritable and because that's the internet, right? You're always, you're just a jerk online. But we were known to be a little bit at least obsessive about this. The hard part, of course, was like, how do you branch outside of Reddit, right? How do you break out of that? And there's there's steps you can take, right? So we, inspired by a charity called GiveWell, they do a Our Mistakes report. I think they do it much more structured, like every quarter or something like that. So we introduced something like that. We're like, hey, these are the mistakes we recognize internally. And now we're talking about it publicly. And these are the ones that we've taken steps for. These are the ones that we're still failing, stuff like that. So, you know, it's very cliche to talk about transparency. But I'll be honest, being transparent sucks. You're basically saying like, this is everything I've screwed up. And this is everything I've deprioritized. And other people will always disagree. And that's generally okay. But no matter what you do, people will come across and be like, hey, why are these jerks not doing this? And instead of focusing on this, like this is obviously more important. Like we went through this process. We had legitimate complaints that we didn't have enough women health information, right? Picos, menstrual cups, all that kind of stuff. But partly we didn't have that because we didn't have many female researchers. And it's not that male researchers can't look at something, but there's also a level of experience and empathy, right? And being able to understand some of the nuances. So that was in our transparency report. It's like, we failed in being diverse enough for their team. And then people attack you, right? Especially nowadays, like, ah, what do you mean diversity? Of course, it's just funny because both my co-founder and I are uh, ethnically South Asian. So it's like, well... 
but what happened was when people would actually read the description of why we said this is a failure, every single person was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Like, okay, I understand where you're coming from. So yeah, it's a slog. It sucks. You know, people talk about being vulnerable online. This is like real vulnerability. It's uncomfortable. But if you do it right, it builds so much trust that one of the things we harp internally a lot is responsibility. Like we can say MSG is the devil and tens of thousands of people believe us. And we can say MSG is the greatest thing in the world and same thing. So there's the downside of like, we have to be very careful of what we talk about, but it took a while to get there. And it's like something you, you you can't just maintain it easily. Like we have to constantly be on top of things, but I think it's worth it because now for us, right, with our customer base and our subscriptions and our trust that our users have with us, um, we get more leeway. You know, if we make a mistake and we own up to it, which we do, people forgive us because like, okay, these guys are being honest. They're not, you know, being disingenuous. So it's a slog to get to it. But if you can achieve it, you know, you you can kind of empathize, right? You have trust with a lot of people and you can be honest about your mistakes and people are like, cool, you know, Rob fessed up, he owned up, you know, I'll give him uh, another chance. So it, it wasn't fun, but it was worth it in the long run. I mean, two things come to mind as you're going through that. I think of it as a trust bank, or we've heard that phrase of like, it's like a credit score where it takes a long time to build up and it's pretty easy to drop Mm -hmm. quickly. You know, you make a couple of mistakes that you don't own up to or you try to cover up or whatever, and suddenly that trust is gone. We see this with scandals at companies. We see this with, there's all types of examples of people who we all love and trust and then they, they do some crappy stuff and suddenly, you know, the trust is gone. The other thing I think about is, you know, you mentioned transparency. And transparency is something big in the startup and the SaaS space. But I find that most of it is bullshit transparency. It's fake transparency for marketing purposes of like, we're being transparent, but they're actually not. It's only, they're being transparent by telling all the good things. Oh, it was so hard. And look at how it turned out. And it's like, wait a minute, but they, they're not telling the real story. And I feel like you're touching on more about telling the real story. And, you know, I know that you have a blog. It's at sjo.com, and which I assume are, are your initials. They're not actually. <laughs> They're not. No. Uh, I mean, we that's funny. I used to be in the domain industry, so uh, that's partly why we got examine.com because like people remember it. I just got SGO because I thought it was very easy to remember, and and that was literally the only reason. Wow. Okay. So, it, anyways, your blog's on hiatus because you're busy focused on you know examine, but folks can go back through and read. There's a lot of stuff you talk about. You talk about like you just did your you know dramatic weight loss. You talk about something we'll get into soon. Just Google smacking the crap out of examine in 2019. I don't know. You talk about all types of stuff that I find it's refreshing and I feel like it's you know pretty honest take on things. So I want to I want to switch things up a little bit and dig into examine and talk about these 10,000 subscribers. This is a lot of paying subscribers, man. I mean, there are very few SaaS apps in the world, you know, that, that have that many. I want to find out, you talked earlier, you said, you know, you have these subscribers and you have worked on onboarding, you know, about churn, about reducing that. And then I want to jump to the, the Google Smackdown, because I, I have to imagine that you get a ton of traffic from organic search and that Google, you know, doing anything as they update their algorithms every what few months, you know, that that's got to hurt. So talk me through, like, you have all these subscribers, which you've built up over 10 and a half years. Do you have a big learning or two that you learned about our onboarding was crap and everyone was leaving versus we did a few things, you know, and this like changed the game for us? So I have a really good uh, two friends of mine that bootstrapped a company called Precision Nutrition. They started in 2001 and they sold 80% of it three years ago for $205 million, right? So a chunk of change. And like they both live in Toronto, like we're good friends. So, you know, I would talk to them about this kind of stuff all the time. 
And they have three things they think are critical for their success. And one of them was something called jobs to be done. So jobs to be done, you might've heard, it's also known as like appreciative customer inquiry, whatever, all these kind of things, but- Our audience will be familiar with it. Yeah. Yeah, we're very familiar with it. That's totally in our in our wheelhouse. Yep. Perfect. So I think, honestly, that was one of the most fundamental things. So what happened was in 2017 to 2019, those were the two, or I guess three actually, roughest years of examine. Like we were almost bankrupt. I had to put it in my own cash to keep it going. And I've never been like shy about admitting this, right? Like, it's also funny, like people are like, aren't you afraid people are going to think you're a failure? I'm like, who? They're not even in my life. Like I never see them. So who cares? So anyway, it, it was bad times. And what had happened was we started creating guides around popular topics, right? So ketogenic diet was very hot. So we did a ketogenic diet and it's a little spike in revenue, you know, when you launch and everyone gets excited. But long term, that's not why people were coming to us, right? They were coming to us for research analysis. And, and you know, you, I'm sure most people have heard of the, you know, PMF survey, the product market fit survey. The biggest thing that was important for us was doing these interviews properly. Because far too many people, when they do these interviews, they do them more as like a UX UI investigation, right? Like, how did you, well, how was this? And were you confused when you're signing up? Which is important, which is important. But I don't feel like enough people actually dig into what the hell are people actually trying to do? Right. When some layperson comes to us and they want to learn about research, like obviously we have a lot of people who have chronic health conditions who come to us. But there's a lot of people who just like appearing smart to their friends and family. That's they'll never admit it. They'll never be like, yes, I just wish to feed my ego and seem so smart. No, they're not going to say that. But it took us a while where we figured out, hey, they want to share this information and feel smart. So really, you know, they're not coming to us for a guide. They don't want long. I mean, they do want nuance. They don't want this long thing. They want here's all the research across all the categories. Like that, we have 25 health categories and we do like five to 10 new studies every month. We summarize them. So instead of you spending, let's say, 10 hours learning about the latest cannabis research or anxiety research or immunology or whatever, we analyze it and we summarize it for you. So that was like one of the most fundamental things that we really changed. And just as a reminder, if someone hasn't heard jobs to be done, really the quick 30 second version is it's you want to understand the timeline, right? Someone went from passively aware to actively aware to deciding and then consuming. And everyone focuses on the consuming part. That's kind of like the PMF survey. But everyone kind of most people ignore the first three parts, right? How do they actually decide? How do they figure out what matters? So that would be my one little thing that I thought was fundamental. So I have a stack of over 100 interviews I've done, you know, an average we spend maybe 45 minutes on average talking to the person and there's usually four people listening. And then we spend maybe an hour and a half afterwards breaking down everything they did. I just saw uh, yesterday, actually, we had an hour session just breaking down eight studies or eight interviews we did into emotional energies. Was it a functional energy? Was it a social or was it um, emotional? Right. So functional is does it the actual thing they want, emotional, how they feel and social, how they see others perceive them as we spent an hour and a half just discussing eight interviews. So I have a stack of 100. I've spent, you know, 100 plus hours on this kind of stuff. I think that was fundamental. So now it's what's amazing about it. And we bring everyone to the team, random researchers join customer research team, whoever they join in on these calls. Because now we really understand not only what are the customers looking for, but what is the language they use, right? Like, it's important. Like, surveys are important. You get language from surveys. But getting to dig in and be like, what does that mean? You know, what does successful mean? Or what does being on top of research mean to you? What does it look like? I think that would be the single most important thing that I think a lot of SaaS founders miss out on. And the nice thing about it is, you know, again, we go to PMF surveys all that. You need a large enough sample size, right? With interviews, just with five interviews, you will glean so much about what they're looking for. We have... I I mean, each interview generates, I would say, an average of like four to six different things we can do better on the website. So that would be my one major recommendation is talk to the customer and don't just talk to them in a perfunctory manner. And one of the side things, um, by the way, that's super easy to do 
is you can sign up for a million other services, even like Duolingo and whatever. And often they will contact you to, because they want to talk to you. I love doing those interviews because you find out how other people are doing it. And you're like, oh, that's genius. And then half of the time you're like, what the hell are these people doing? Like they're not getting anything from me. Because the other final sorry bit is people will try to help you. So you have to remember that whenever you interview them, they're going to try to give you the answers you want to hear or they think you want to hear. And your job as an interviewer is to break that down to really understand what's driving them. And that's where like, you know, what do you mean by that? Or can you explain on that? Or can you elaborate on why you use this word or whatever? That I think would be super important for any SaaS founder to really uh, experience themselves. We did a similar thing for microconf about two years ago, 18 months, two years ago. And it was crazy enlightening, you know, just all the terms that we pulled out of that. We were trying to figure out really what our brand was about and what people thought about it. And I had my own gut feeling as the co-founder of it, but it helped us realize some other adjectives, the way people talk about microconf, the trust and community were like these big things, belonging relationship. So yeah, jobs to be done interviewing producers, Andrew did those. And they, you know, we went on Amazon for some books. We asked a couple of friends who had done them. And then we had some recordings of some and listened to how people, you know, push and push. And like you said, you dig and you dig and you dig and you get there. And so I found them extremely valuable. I was just going to recommend one guy, uh, Bob Mesta. He's like OG. He's been around since the seventies, M-O-E-S-T-A. Um, he's usually the go-to I refer to whenever um, someone wants to dig a, a little bit further into it. Very cool. So I want to I want to switch over to this article that you wrote on examine.com. And it's it says Google and examine.com. It's in your site news category. Google is waging more on the peddling of magical pills and miracle cures by questionable health sites and examine.com seems to have been caught in the crossfire. This is July of 2019. And then, you know, it was last updated about a year ago. But it sounds to me, and you, you have a graph of your Google Analytics chart that looks like, uh, let's see, over the past two and a half years, Google has decreased traffic to examine.com by roughly 90%, which had to have just been excruciating and, and, and hit you pretty hard. Can you talk me through after building all of that? So you're eight, nine years into building this company with this huge flywheel of traffic, and then it starts doing that. What was the reaction? How did you pull out of it? It was definitely a little bit shocking, right? Because it's a cliff. It wasn't even like a, because oftentimes the slow descent, we just got annihilated. And the one thing I don't think we mentioned was we basically hit our baseline because we were getting still like four or 5,000 visitors a day from Google. And almost everyone was searching for Examine to find us. So it wasn't even that they were still sending us traffic. It was our brand name was so damn strong that it's like Examine, you know, protein, Examine, ashwagandha, creatine, what Examine says, blah, blah, blah. So that was like literally about as low as we can go. I got to be honest, it kicked our ass. We never regained it. Funnily enough, I have like a little support group of other, let's, I'm going to call them mid-size, like in terms of traffic, mid-size health sites that have all been KO'd by Google. One of them, for example, has a podcast with NPR. One of them has won multiple nonprofit awards for going after pharmaceutical companies. I get it. It sucks. Like for people who don't know, basically Google went um, after YMYL, your money, your life. So finance and health websites because of the insane amount of misinformation and disinformation, right? Health space, obviously, like vitamin D cures everything and this, and obviously financial crypto and all that kind of stuff caused a lot of pain for a lot of people. So they basically were like, hey, unless we can really trust you, we're going to not really trust you. So Healthline, which is a billion-dollar company, WebMD, which is a billion-dollar company, and Everyday also, Everyday Health are also a billion-dollar company, they basically started dominating. 
But what's so genius, what they did, and, and mad respect to them, is they then started going out and buying old, well-established health websites and applying the same SEO they did on their main domain to others, like MedNews Today and uh, Psychology Compass and Psychology Today and all these other websites are now owned by, WebMD hasn't really bought anything, but Healthline and um, the other one. So this coincided with the ass-kicking I talked about that we had 2017 to 2019. And partly what it, we had, and so many people can and vouch for this from other experiences, you kind of get addicted to the free traffic that Google is just shoveling down your throat, right? You're like, hey, I don't have to worry about my optimizations because we're getting so much traffic. So in some ways it was good because it made us do more stuff like JTBD interviews and understand what we're trying to do, which pushed us heavily into the subscription area. I will say we never really regained our rankings. Now, obviously I'm biased. I still think we're better than pretty much anyone ab above us, especially not to specifically besmirch them, but like Healthline will have like 19 articles on creatine and kidney and it's just the same regurgitation stuff. But this is simply the reality we have to work with. Like we doubled or maybe tripled the amount of traffic that Google was giving us uh, from the from the nadir we suffer from. But yeah, it's the reality of life. Like we've talked to so many people from all facets of Google and, you know, they talk about eat and all that kind of stuff. And we have eat up the wazoo, right? Like when COVID first hit last year, New York Times came to us and asked us like, hey, you know, what supplements could possibly help? And we're like, ah, you know what? Nothing. But it's the reality and you got to live with it, right? Like people can complain and I don't blame them if they do, but I understand we are effectively collateral damage. And in a horrific way, I understand because the negative harm or the harm, sorry, that other companies were causing in health, I totally get it from an end user perspective. I would rather they not see that and not see us than see us and that kind of garbage. But like, you know, this is the life of an entrepreneur, right? You need to uh, keep a level of like Zen stoicism and be like, hey, man, like this is we can't change it, right? We can't go and Google, why aren't you listening? Why aren't you doing better? So unfortunately, I don't have like a nice clean answer. You just kind of got to deal with it. And thankfully, we actually weren't that heavily on subscriptions before. Like subscription was maybe 5% of our revenue, right? So we started heavily focusing on it. So long term, I think it'll be fine, but definitely very unpleasant in the short term. And I know a ton of SaaS founders who've experienced the exact same thing, you know, who rely on SEO for a lot of their trials, a lot of their leads. And it's just whether it's, I mean, going all the way back to Panda and Penguin or whether it's just any update that comes out, you know, every quarter, every six months, it's always a, it's a danger. And SEO, like you said, is a, is an amazing organic traffic is, is such an amazing lever, but it's also, there's a little bit of diversification that I always encourage people to embark on, you know, to have that. Ooh, absolutely. It's all about the distribution. Like, I'll be honest, I started doing SEO in 2001 when Google was so relatively new and then the monthly updates that would be named after there's a Google guy on Webmaster World. Like I've been around long enough to have seen the highs and the lows. And I have a website that I started in 2003 that I haven't really touched in 2009. And the last 11 years, it's literally gone 10x up and 10x down. And like I've done nothing. I've literally done it. It's just sitting there. And still it's like it's gone back up in the last couple of years, not nearly as high as it was, but that's simply the Google to me. And I always tell everyone is like extra never ever 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 rely on it that's what it is it's just free bonus it's bonus traffic that's it so i want to ask you uh before we wrap about these pages that you have on the internet that i call stunt pages or just these stunts that you pull that i think are pretty cool and i and i i say that with you know kind of a bit of admiration because i want to find out your motivation behind them basically if people go to sjo.com and then go to your about page you show that if you go to google and you type in your name Saul Orwell then it says like the google auto completes as Saul Orwell net worth Saul Orwell weight loss Saul Orwell wife Saul you know all this stuff and it's the same thing 
paying for my name, right? I, and I've never paid attention to it. But you went and built pages because since your site ranks so well, I mean, it ranks number one for your name anyways, you built out all those pages because they, they didn't really exist or I don't know, they were on crap sites, Yahoo Answers or something. And on each of them, you basically just make it up. And it's like the net worth says by utilizing sources such as his, well, his rugged beard, his odd love for cookies and combining it with Pixie Dust, we can ascertain that Saul Orwell's net worth is roughly 31 point. Four one five nine million, which of course, as I saw that, I'm like three point one four one five. Now that was the first six digits high, right? So, and then at the bottom, you're like, nope, I'm just making it up. This is being cheeky, blah blah blah. So it's it's pretty. I I just think it's clever. It's funny, and you also have this. I I don't know if I, if I do it today, if it still works, but if I go to Google and type in most handsome man in Toronto, I believe it it links to you, or at least you have a picture of it on your Facebook page. So you've just ranked. You know you you know how to rank. You're an SEO and a domainer. You know how to rank for these things. So. It's funny. It's cool, but wh- why do that? Like, what? What's the motivation? Honestly, I don't. I don't even. I don't have a good answer. So I've always joked about internet fame, right? So I, I mentioned I started this off in '99. I've always been generally. Most people have no idea I exist. Most people think my co-founder is the only one like who owns Examine. Like even on our about page, I'm like the 20th or 30th name mentioned way down. I'm like, I'm below my EA. I'm like down there. So I've never been about the internet fame. So part of what happened, what I would always make fun of e-fame, right? I've mentioned internet fame. This completely ephemeral thing. And so one of the things that we started making fun of is people would start Googling me and be like, hey, you know, I was searching for your name and like people are looking up your real name. Like, what does that mean? I'm like, oh yeah, you know, I legally changed my name. Oh, what's going on there? I'm like, whatever, right? Like it's 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 not a serious thing to me. So really what it was, I think was a combination of, you know, you're internet famous or D minus, you know, internet celebrity. When people start searching for your net worth and your significant other, right? It's always wife or husband or net worth, which is absurd, right? Like, how are you going to find out my net worth? Like I'm not in any list or anything. I'm not that rich, not even close. So to me, it was just so many people and it kind of goes back to entrepreneurs being very miserable. To me, it was just a funny joke. Like it was just something I remember I was flying. So I have a friend in Japan that like I go see him almost uh, once a year. And I just wrote all of this off Wi-Fi. And I just made these pages because I was like, I've got nothing better to do. I can't go to sleep right now. Why don't we have fun with it? And, and I got to be honest, you know, you talk about uh, you'll meet other entrepreneurs like one of my best friends. He his his business was every time there'd be like a national emergency, he would go there, buy Facebook ads and hook up local contractors with people looking for, you know, fire support or whatever, whatever. And I've always loved these kind of random edge cases uh, which make no sense, but you're just, they're not really meant to do anything other than explore the fringes. One random last example I'll give you back in the days of Google SEO, uh, having a DMOZ listing was huge, right? Like being listed in the uh, ODP, right? Open Directory Project. So what I did one summer, and this is in 2003, I bought a bunch of databases, put all this information online, and I had one high school kid who did nothing but submit every single page he could to DMOZ. And we ended up with 300 some listings and we sold the website for like forty dollars or $50,000. <laughs> It was just something to like do, right? I, I feel like we get so lost in just doing the work that we lose having fun and, and basically spooling around. So the pages were just me having fun the entire who. So the most handsome thing was I have another friend who lost more weight, who's very attractive. So I'd always make fun of him, but I'm like, no, in Toronto, you're not as handsome as me. So that's all it was. It was just, just to like kind of poke him. I made this page. Who's the most handsome. So if you still Google it, it says research says that the most handsome guy in Toronto is Saul Orwell. There's absolutely no doubt about it. Cause you know, really what I was going was after the one boxes, right? And and the funny part of it is most people don't realize one boxes 
or like just some random snippet from, so you can go to random strangers, not like, not that I do this. And I'd be like, Hey, you know, the most handsome person, like if I met a friend and they don't really, they're not internet savvy, like, Hey, look at the internet. Google says I'm the most handsome man in Toronto. They don't understand. It literally says SJO.com underneath it. So really it was just me trying to be like a muckracker or a dumbass. Really? That was it. It was just, we spend so much time being serious online and examine is a very serious endeavor, right? We're relatively very uncheeky in it because it's science and research. So this, I guess, was more just an outlet for me to kind of have fun. And so the cookies and all that, all of that is just like, hey, man, we can have fun. And if not, it's OK. Like, I'm just trying to live my version of a best life. Yeah, I think it's funny, a similar similar story. My kids will troll people if they have an Amazon Echo an A-L-E-X-A, as we say in my house, so we don't trigger it. Because if you ask, if you say, Alexa, tell me about, insert person's name, she will usually say, you know, I don't know anything. But if you have a Wikipedia page, she will read the first two sentences while I'm on Wikipedia. So they'll go and they'll go to a person's house, Alexa, tell me about Rob Walling. And she'll say, Rob Walling is an investor, entrepreneur, and author, blah, blah, blah. And people are like, what? Like, you're famous. So it's a similar thing that it's like, I'm, I'm not actually, no, I'm not famous. But like, it's, it's just people don't know where Alexa's pulling from. You know, well, how does Alexa know about you? So... I get it. Yeah, I, I gotta be honest. I think 90% of what I do like this is just to like mess with my mom because she's obviously very internet and savvy and she thinks I'm this huge deal online when really it's just me being an idiot and, and like having the savvy to like, you know, screw around with it. Very nice, sir. Thanks so much uh, again for joining me on the show today. If folks want to keep up with you, you are at Saul underscore Orwell on Twitter and of course, examine.com if they want to see what you're focused on these days. Thanks again for joining me. Thanks for having me, Rob. It was my pleasure. Hope you enjoyed that conversation between Saul and I. Obviously a little bit different than, you know, some of the other episodes that we've we've released over the years. But frankly, I like to expose myself and hopefully expose you to new thoughts, new ideas, and just different paths. You know, it, the world is larger than bootstrapped and mostly bootstrapped B2B SaaS. I think there are a lot of disciplines that are orthogonal to ours that we can learn from. And I think there's a lot of value in having conversations with folks who maybe aren't in you know, the same bubble and the same little ecosystem that we exist in. So thank you again for joining me this week. And I'll be back in your earbuds again next Tuesday morning.